morning, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. While you're doing that, I want to highlight and just remind you this next Sunday night, October 23rd, we'll be having up here at the church, uh, Creation Ministries International is going to be talking about the alternative, Creation's Competitive Edge. It's a group that's out of Atlanta, Georgia, I believe. Uh, Lou Tepper's brought them to our attention and uh, we've been promoting this in our community. Great opportunity to come, uh, think about uh, creation, think about what uh, the science says. And um, and so I would just encourage you in that respect to put that on your calendar, come out next Sunday evening, grab a neighbor or somebody who would uh, perhaps be interested in this. Um, great opportunity for us as a church. If you've got your Bibles and you're at Genesis chapter 39, we're going to read the, uh, we'll read the whole chapter together and then uh, we'll see what the Lord has for us. Let's read it together. <coughs> now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken, taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian Because of Joseph, the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though he spoke to Joseph, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought here to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. When she told him this story, that Hebrew slave, that Hebrew slave that you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of his house. When his master heard this story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, 
the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for the opportunity we have now to meditate upon it. And I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, for your glory and for our good. Amen. So this morning we're looking at the sovereignty of God, titled the sermon, God's Perfect Plan. One of the most difficult things about the sovereignty of God is believing it, is believing that this God who has created us indeed is sovereign over everything, even our lives, and the details of the things that happen to us. I want to do something that we don't do much of, that we don't do a lot of, and that is I want to read a couple of snippets from some various confessions of faith this morning, okay? And um, and, and I want to start with the Baptist Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession. It was written in 1689, and it says this about the decrees of God. Just listen to the way they lay this out. Now, the most ancient confessions are are really just a summary, a summation, if you will, of what they found in Scripture. And so uh, they were trying to boil it down to the basics in order to, uh, in order to train and to teach. That's what early confessions and creeds were used for. So listen to the way the early Baptist confession describes the decrees of God. They say this, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with anything therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. Now we're getting way in. But it's that first half that I want you to hear. That God, from all eternity, has ordained everything that would come to pass, and yet he hasn't violated the will of the creatures that he has created. Amazing. And yet, when we go to Scripture, that's exactly what we see. We see human autonomy. We see human beings acting within the sphere of their will. At the same time, we see a sovereign God who is over all. And is intimately involved and acquainted and, and working out the details of our lives. Listen to the, now this one's going to strike you as odd probably, the Methodists of Wales, 1823. God from eternity after the counsel of his own will and for the manifestation and exaltation of his glorious attributes decreed all that he would do and in time and to eternity in creation in the government of his creatures and in the salvation of sinners of the human race. 
The Methodists were saying that God decreed everything that would happen in his creation, in their salvation, from before time began, in eternity past. Our own Westminster Confession, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeable, ordain whatsoever comes to pass, and yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now, those are creeds. I get it. Some of you are saying, show me in the word. Right? And that's what I want us to begin to do. Because I think as we work our way through the life of Joseph, what we're going to see is God's fingerprints all over the place. Not just his fingerprints. Genesis 39 lays out for us. It says no less than five times the Lord was with Joseph. Now he's not just saying the Lord was accompanying Joseph. The Lord was, you know, there um, somehow aiding his spirit. What the writer of Genesis 39 is telling us is that the Lord was, he was amongst all of these details. And he's going to sew all the all of that up for us when we get to Genesis 15. I don't want to turn to the end of the book. Some of you do that sort of thing, right? You read the first and the last chapter, and uh, and I don't want to do that this morning. I want you to follow the story as we work our way through it. But he will sew those details up at the very end with a very concise summary statement at the end of Genesis 50 to let us know this was not by accident. These these happenings were not just pure chance, as if they all fell into place somehow. God was orchestrating the very details of Joseph's life. I think at a very practical level, if you struggle with this, if you were to ask yourself, why do I pray? If you struggle with God being involved in the details of lives, right? I often, I often ask friends who kind of wrestle with this. I say, do you have anybody you know that's a non-believer, an unbeliever? Yeah. Do you pray for them? Well, yeah. The next logical question is, why? Because if you don't believe that God is somehow going to intervene in that person's life, change their heart, why would you pray for them? Of course you believe that God is not just intimately acquainted with us, but he is involved in the details of our lives. How does this work with providence? How do our prayers bend the ear of God so that he would move in our lives? I don't know. All I know is that the word lays it out for us and tells us that he does. And so we come here to this section of Joseph's life, and I want you to see as we begin to work our way through it, I want you to see God's perfect plan, and, and there's several aspects of it this morning. The first is this, God's perfect plan is mysterious. Fathers and mothers typically want good things for their children. They typically want their children, they want to see their children do well. But think about the parenting process. Sometimes the best learning in life is through difficulty. It's not, it's not intervening and 
pulling our child out of a difficult situation. Colin's not here. I think he's 18. He's 19 now, which means he's beyond that point where I have to ask him for permission to tell stories, okay? I get a phone call. Colin is on fall break at Mississippi State. And so a group of Reformed University Fellowship students went up to Dolly World. They had a little conference up there. And I get a call from him Friday night at 1130. I'm asleep. And um, and I get this call, and I'm thinking, oh, boy. Um, I see the phone ringing. It, you know, not this is atypical. And uh, he had his, a flat tire on his way back from Tennessee. Okay. So. We proceed to go through what exactly has taken place with this flat tire. And what had proceeded to take place was when Colin was home this summer, his latch has been broke on the back of his vehicle for a while. And so I told him, make an appointment to get your latch fixed. I'll pay for it. Well, guess what? We didn't get the latch fixed. But the latch had been ordered, and so he took the latch back to Starkville, and I said, Colin, you need to get that latch put on as soon as you can. Now that you've got it, make an appointment and get that latch on. Guess what? He hadn't had that latch put on. And so there he is with a flat tire, and he can't access the little deal that draws down his tire from underneath his vehicle, which means he can't get his tire off and a spare put on. And so he's going to have to leave his vehicle where it is. Uh, anyways, thankfully he was near Starkville. He was able to get a friend to help him the next day. But it was a lot more work, a lot more effort. Now, that's that's one of the situations, right? You wish you could, like, parachute in and just fix it for him. Just, you know, snap your fingers. I could have told him, really, just call USAA Roadside <laughs> And they'll come take care of your situation. But you know what that would have done? That would have short-circuited the learning process for Colin. Don't you dare tell him. (laughs) But sometimes we want to parachute in and we want to extract our children from difficulty. But to let them go through the difficulty helps to teach them very valuable lessons about life and and those sorts of things. Listen, God, God does that with us. Not to mention the fact that we're in a fallen world. We're sinners. Those around us are sinners. We don't see the world exactly as we should and as we ought because of the fallen nature that we still possess. Right? And so we go through difficulty. And God allows us. And so in those ways, God's plan for us is mysterious. One of my good friends back in in the late 80s, I've talked about him before, Matt Baugh, who um, was a missionary to Haiti, and he died down there a few years ago. In the late 80s, Matt was uh, Matt liked to drag race, and he was drag racing in Montgomery one night. Um, I think he said it was on Vaughn Road. It was very late, and the police um, weren't fond of his drag racing, and so he was pulled over. He ended up going to jail. And he spent a little time in jail. And it was during that time that um, he was thinking his dad or his granddad were going to bail him out. Instead, they let Matt stay in that cell. And it was while Matt was in the jail cell 
for whatever period that was, longer than he thought he should have been in there, that the Lord reached out and grabbed hold of Matt's heart and changed him. And he was never the same, radically changed. He would have told you, I shouldn't have been there. I was there too long. You know, all of those sorts of things. When he was looking at it initially, it was a great travesty of justice. There were all kinds of people doing a lot worse stuff than Matt drag racing on Vaughn Road in Montgomery. But the Lord mysteriously used all of those details, not just to call Matt to himself, to call Matt to himself and to full-time ministry of the gospel. Sometimes all we see is the underside of the tapestry, right? Sometimes, sometimes, most of the time, all we see is the knots and the mess, and we don't get to see the glimpse of the full, the frontal side, what it is that God is doing. Rarely do we get to see that, but He's there and He's working mysteriously to bring a beautiful picture together on the top side. I was reflecting on this last couple of days. And um, Jody and the ladies are finishing up their work in the orphanage in China. Jody's always loved photography. It was one of the early, and travel, it was one of the early things that brought us together. And, um, and I'll never forget, very early, we weren't dating, we just kind of knew each other. We were in college ministry together. And one evening after uh, a meeting at church, I saw Jody, and she had this photo album under her arm. And so I said, hey, what's that? And she pulled it out, and she started showing me these pictures. And Jody had just traveled to the Galapagos Islands and to Ecuador by herself with a small travel team that she met up with down there. And so she had all these amazing pictures. I mean, she she traveled, you know, in the footsteps of kind of a Charles Darwin down there and took all of these incredible photographs. Jody had this desire when she was younger. She wanted to go and work for National Geographic or Life magazine or something. She wanted to go take pictures and tell stories. That was kind of this burning passion in her heart. Just the other day, as she was finishing up in China, She posted this. She says, when I was little, my dream job was to be a photojournalist for Life Magazine or National Geographic. I wanted to tell stories through photos and words. And then she got married to me. (laughs) Poor seminary student. And we began having a wonderful family. And life went a different direction. She doesn't say that, but that's the in-between. She says, I realized this morning that God has, that God has granted me those childhood wishes. But instead of photographing endangered animals or unique landscapes, I'm telling stories of far more worth. For two years in a row now, I've traveled to a part of the world where few people ever get the chance to visit. I get to take pictures and videos and use my words to tell stories of children, beautiful and incredible children, that through these photos and stories, God is bringing children into forever families. You know, the underside of the tapestry for Jody probably was for a number of years this burning desire to go and do National Geographic photography. And the Lord was working and orchestrating situations and events in her life so that she's where she's at today. Let me encourage you to let the mystery linger even in your lives. To think about how it is that God is using you. What, 
What are the circumstances in your life that have brought you to the place that you are now? Let that mystery remain a mystery for you about how God has orchestrated some of that. Here is Joseph, sold twice, finds his way into Potiphar's house. He's had this drastic swing in direction. He's doing everything the right way, and yet things completely completely beyond his control take control of his life. And everything comes crashing down. He ends back up in prison. How? Why? Imagine Joseph asking all of those questions. I've done nothing. Not realizing that the Lord was orchestrating all of these events for down the road. So that he could be the savior of his brothers and his family. Here's the second part. God's perfect plan is often difficult. And I was saying this, I was a little out of kilter a few minutes ago, but, um, but, but here we are in this sin-ravaged world, right? Looking through a broken pair of glasses at a broken world. And so we don't always get it correctly, but here it is through all of that, God is working. Not the author of sin, but using sinful circumstances, situations, to work together his plan. Joseph's life this far has been full of tremendous difficulty. Raised in an incredibly dysfunctional family we've been looking at. Brothers who hated him, plotted to kill him, only to finally sell him, thankfully, to slave traders. And then he lands in Potiphar's house, only to encounter Potiphar's crazed wife in a crazy situation in which he does everything right. And yet, he ends up back in prison. The king's prison. He will spend two years in this prison. And though the favor of the Lord is with him, Though he rises to leadership in this setting, he is in prison. Listen, you have to get the modern notion of American prisons out of your head. Think of the Tangier prison. Okay? Think of, think of ancient prisons, shackles on their hands, on their feet. Think of no light in the cells sort of prisons. Somebody describes uh, ancient prison And perhaps Joseph's situation like this. Imagine a large gloomy hall with no windows, paved with stones, black with filth, no light, no air, save what may struggle through the narrow grated aperture in the ceiling, by which friends of the wretched inmates or some pitying strangers passing by Pass in food and water, which are the sole stuff of life. No arrangements of any kind being made for cleanliness or for life. No arrangements of any kind being made to take care of medical needs or for the separation of prisoners. All day long there is the weary clank of fetters around feet as the victims slowly drag themselves over the floor. Listen, this is no happy place. There's nobody mopping the floors. There's nobody sticking a nice tray underneath the cell. Hey, here's your three squares a day. 
That's the situation that Joseph found himself in. And for two long years. The situation was incredibly difficult. And God's plans, His perfect plan, often leads us into difficult places. I would challenge you, just make your way through the Bible. Look at the characters of Scripture. Let's take two. How about the Apostle Paul? This is how he describes his life in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in 23. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Wow. This is God's hand-picked servant to write a big chunk of the New Testament. And what does he experience? All that. And that's just the summary. Think of all the incredible details, the struggles. God's plan is often difficult. God has not promised us an easy road. And as we look at Joseph's life, we get that. There's no shortcut to bypass difficulty. It it doesn't exist. It's there. The most common trap is to believe that some sort of a financial windfall is the answer for all of life's troubles. Just go home and Google lottery winners. And you will see more train wrecks than you want to read about. Sometimes God gives us what we want so that we will discover that it was poison that we longed for all along. God's perfect plan is often difficult. There's no greater picture of that than what happened to Jesus. Marion read for us that section out of Acts chapter 2, in which we get a picture of all of these things happening, and yet it was the Lord who orchestrated, right? It was the Lord who sent Jesus into the world. Were the events terrible? Absolutely. Tragic? Yes. Orchestrated by God? Yes. For our salvation. The final point is this. God's perfect plan is always good. Is this plan difficult? Yes. Does this plan cause us to scratch our heads sometimes? Is it mysterious? Yes. But guess what? It is always good. Here I'm thinking specifically of the children of God, but I think you could argue it no matter 
But listen to what the scriptures specifically teach us about what God is doing for his redeemed children. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, Paul doesn't say in some things. Paul says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now, what Paul specifically is telling us here is that God is going to carry our salvation to completion. And everything will be working together for that salvation. Absolutely true. But he lumps in with that all things, every little event along the way. God is working together those things for our good. Was God at work in Joseph's life for good? I bet at the twelfth month in prison, Joseph was probably scratching his head thinking, what did I do to deserve this? Is it difficult difficult to see? Often. But that's when the truth needs to ring loudest in our ears and in our heart, right? That's when you cling to these passages. I've often had people tell me, you know, you don't want to rush in. Um, you don't want to rush in as a pastor and somebody's in great difficulty and read Romans 8.28 to them. Oh, that's just a slap in the face, pastor. Really? I mean, I want to be sensitive about it. But that's our greatest hope. Our greatest hope in that moment is that God is working and bringing together and orchestrating all of these horrific, terrible events in my life for good. I need that in my darkest moment. And I know you probably do too. And so Paul tells us here, yes, everything that happens, every twist, every turn, Every dark alley, every despicable act, he will orchestrate for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we'll see it in the life of Joseph as we continue to work our way through his story. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. We want to thank you this morning for your good, for your perfect plan that you are always at work, that you love us, that you'll never leave us, you'll never forsake us, that you have called us according to a great purpose. And that is, Father, that we would be and do for your glory. As you orchestrate all of these things for our good, Father, we know that it does indeed give you great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.